Have you ever thought whether paganism and Christianity have anything in common? Whether they are compatible or not? Well, today we will have a special guest talking just about this. Hello everyone, I'm Angela and welcome back to my channel, your online resource for the academic study of magic and magic practicing religions and traditions. Today I have a special guest here on the channel and her name is Jennifer Azel. Jennifer is a doctoral researcher at Durham University and she specializes in druidry, death rites and paganism in general. She is also a senior examiner in religious studies, both at GCAC and A level, and was head of religious education at a number of schools for many years. So she's very knowledgeable when it comes to religions. So I'm really, really happy to have her here on the channel. She's also a dear friend of mine. So please help me in welcoming Jennifer Azel. So hello Jenny, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. I'm really happy that you accepted to be once again here on Angela's Symposium. I always, always love to have you as a guest. You're really knowledgeable and I'm absolutely sure that my audience will love what you're going to say. Oh, I don't know, some of it is a bit controversial I think this time. That's even better. That <laughs> makes it even more interesting. <laughs> so now that we have hyped up the <laughs> before even starting. Uh, so yeah, we today we are going to talk about the um, relationship between Christianity and paganism, between Christian and pagan magic, and um, we will end by addressing the current state of the relationship between Christians and pagans. My first question is, what was the relationship between Christianity and paganism when Christianity first started to take roots? Okay, so um, when Christianity first began, obviously it was in the Middle East and it was in the context of um, a Hellenistic world. So a world that was dominated by Greek culture. Um, so the Romans, the Greeks, the Egyptians all had um, very ancient religions at that point. And when Christianity arrived, we, we sometimes have the impression that um, the relationship was straightforward. Christianity was persecuted, 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 and then everybody was Christian. And it was obviously a far more complicated relationship than that over the, the course of about 300 years. Uh, and the world that Christianity arrived in was a world where the something that we call mystery religions had been going for about 200 years. So they, they start round about 200 BCE. And, and what is different about the mystery religions compared to the state religions that had preceded them is that they were about personal relationship. So the Greek and Roman state religions were very much about preserving the city of Rome, about preserving Greek culture. They weren't about individuals. Uh, the mystery religions start to bring in the idea that an individual can have a relationship with a god. Uh, and the most, the, um, the Alicinian mysteries 
uh, at Eleusis are the best known that uh, concern Demeter and Persephone. Uh, there were also mysteries around Dionysus, around Orpheus, uh, and around Isis, uh, and Sibeli, who was a, um, a Turkish, it came from, from what is now Turkey. Um, and all of these have to do with a mystical, personal, emotional relationship with a god or goddess that continues after death. So there is the possibility now of personal survival after death. And this again is quite a new idea in this form. And of course, these are themes that are also there in Christianity. So there is the basis there for dialogue. Um, quite a few of Paul's letters specifically warn Christians about getting involved with these groups. He says, you know, this is not something you can do as well as that. Um, but people did, otherwise he wouldn't have said it. So you have this, this dialogue. And um, as part of my master's degree, I researched the, um, the relationship specifically between baptism and Eucharist in the early church and things that were going on in the mystery religions at the same time. And whilst um, quite a bit has been written, uh, most of it negative, about whether uh, Christianity borrowed any ideas from the mystery religions around it in certain places, and I think it almost certainly did, but what I said that was maybe a bit new is that I think it also gave things. So there was this um, exchange of ideas, certainly around sacred food, certainly around um, washing or cleansing. Um, I wrote a bit about the, the relationship between the Torah Bolum, which is where uh, an initiate was covered in bull's blood. And, and you have the language of being cleansed in blood that comes into the New Testament as well. So there is a conversation that's going on between those two things. And, and that is really interesting. And uh, I know we're going to talk later about magic specifically, but in all of these cultures, in the Greek culture, in the Roman culture, in the, in the Egyptian culture, it had been normal to, uh, for individuals um, to invoke particular deities um, in, in what really is magic. It was an attempt to manipulate things uh, for their own benefit. Uh, and it could be anything. It could be connected with love, marriage, pregnancy, getting back things that had been stolen. All of these things, there are magical formulae. And what's really interesting is that some of them are Christian. So they mm. use Christian language to try and, and get exactly the same result. So we know that this was going on. Yeah, that this was, it, this is now my, <laughs> you've <laughs> entered the territory of my second question, which is whether, is there a difference between Christian and pagan magic? Is there a specific relation between the two? Are the two completely different? Well, it, it, it entirely depends. This is where we get controversial, I suppose. It entirely depends on how you're going to define magic. And as you and I both know, we could, we could write books just on that. Um, if you take magic, and of course there are a, a large number of Christians who would say there is no magic in Christianity uh, and that Christianity is actively opposed to magic. And that is, I suppose, the standard Christian view. It doesn't seem to reflect how people have behaved in history. Uh, we just say that. Um, and whether you see this as a legitimate part of Christianity or whether you see this as some sort of um, misunderstanding or degra degradation of Christianity will entirely depend on, on where you're coming from to begin with. 
I suppose. But there are certainly, I mean, these, these magical texts are absolutely fascinating. Um, and some of them, um, I have a book of, of ancient Christian magic formulae, uh, mostly Coptic, some of them are Greek documents. They date from the third to the fifth century, I think. Most of them are around Alexandria and Egypt. Some of them syncretize. So one of the very earliest ones syncretizes the names of Egyptian gods with Jewish um, words such as Adonai um, appears in there. So there is syncretism going on. But there are also uh, attempts to invoke the name of the Trinity. Um, and because I have said this in the name of the Trinity, it must happen. Now, that's not supplication. That is an attempt to manipulate using words of power which for me brings it into the realm of magic rather than into the realm of prayer. And, and it's also very interesting that at this period, the Trinity is not fixed. So whereas now, if you say to somebody, what is the Holy Trinity, then you will always get the answer, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, in these texts, the Father and the Son are pretty much fixed. But who the third party is changes quite a bit. Sometimes it's the Virgin Mary. Sometimes it's Sophia. Sometimes it's the Holy Spirit, but there is there is ambiguity and there is movement. Um, and of course, the um, the Bible mentions angels. Uh, it doesn't go into a great detail about angels, but um, Jewish and Christian mystical writings picked up the idea of angels and went with it. So the Talmud, um, the um, Various sort of apocryphal writings talk about angels quite a lot, and this led to an almost science uh, around the Renaissance around angels and demons. Um, yeah, like John Dee, for example. <laughs> exactly, like John Dee. What what uh, what John Dee was doing? Most people, certainly most um, occultists, acknowledge that what John Dee was doing was magic, um, invoking the names of angels in particular. Um, but it's quite clear that he is doing it in the name of God, that it is Christian angels that he is invoking. Um, and so, again, you have an attempt to control within very firmly placed within a Christian worldview, using things that quite clearly are coming from a magical rather than a, a, a conventional religious perspective. So you don't like, think that the... Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, likewise, the witch trials. Um, probably the best known of the witch trials in, in Britain is the Pendle witches. Um, in, I think it was about 1607, somewhere in that area. Um, and the two main people that were accused in that were Chattox and Demdike, who were two sort of matriarchs of, of Pendle. And we know from some of the trial records that what they were doing um, was using Christian formulae. So when one of the informants talks about the spell, I think it was Demdike was using, it again, it's using Christian language. It's commanding in the name of the Trinity. So is there a difference between pagan and Christian magic? I would say where magic is being used in a Christian context, and certainly that does and has happened, 
then the difference is the names, is the words of power. The difference is what things are commanded in the name of. And of course, if you go into the Old Testament, you have Jesus commanding things and you have the disciples commanding people to be healed in the name of Jesus because the name itself holds power. And this idea is taken up and it's, it's run with throughout history, certainly into the Middle Ages, uh, certainly up to the Reformation. People are using Bible verses. They are using charms with Bible verses written on them. They are using, they're invoking the names of angels, the name of Christ, the name of uh, the disciples as words of power, which bring about change in their own right rather than as supplicatory prayer. So, I would say if there is a difference, it's only in so far as the worldview that is in the background of it and the, the words of power that are being used. So do you think that magic can be seen as inherently either pagan or Christian or Jewish or any other religion, or is it just something that comes after a specific worldview or a theoretical framework? which is, as you said, in the background? I, I certainly don't think it is specifically belonging to any religion. I, I, I will no doubt be proved wrong, but I can't think of any religion that has not used magic. There are many religions that strongly disapprove of it, uh, and where it certainly isn't within the, the orthodox iteration of the religion. But it has existed, I think, in pretty much every religion and every worldview. Um, and that makes perfect sense because people living in uncertainty with, you know, at the, at the mercy of nature, at the mercy of disease, at the mercy of the weather, um, are going to do whatever they feel they can to try and manipulate, to try and make things work more in their favor than against it. And the mechanisms by which they do that, which um, we have generally called magic, are going to depend on what they think are the powerful things that they can influence. Uh, but certainly there is, there is mysticism, there is magic in every religion that I've come across. Mm. Yeah. I quite agree. I, I used to, to lead a, a module or a course at Leeds Trinity University on magic in religions and how magic gets embedded in across different religions. But I didn't dare to go into monotheisms, to be honest. I used to focus more on polytheisms um, just because, as you said, it's really controversial and it is very controversial and it will you know <laughs> i am sitting back back and waiting for the flack after this but <laughs> but it the, the fact is that it has been used that way in christianity and i i think you would have to go a long way to prove that it hasn't whether you want to argue that that is because people have misused misinterpreted misunderstood what they should have been doing as christians that is a perfectly valid theological standpoint but yeah. certainly people have used uh, the name of God, the name of Jesus, um, the names of angels and magical formulae and rituals that are derived directly from Christianity in order to try to influence the world around them. Yeah, I and, guess the... And, and influence it by, by magic rather than by prayer. Yeah, I guess that it is different whether you want to approach the matter 
from a theological standpoint or from an anthropological standpoint? Because, yeah. of course, as a theologian, you would think about the orthodoxy of that specific religion. But as an anthropologist, you look at what people do, so, yeah. <laughs> regardless of what the, what is written in the book as the perfect um, expression of that specific religion, what matters to from an anthropological uh, point of view, I guess also sociological and yeah, and religious studies point of view is to see what people do regardless of what they are supposed to do. And that's it, you know, the difference between lived religion and um, the dogma and what's coming from the top yeah. is, well, that's a whole different realm of study in its own right. I just want to give you um, an example before we move on. This is an example of a spell. So this is um, to do with an amulet to protect you from evil spirits. Well, that again there is about as magical as you can get, I think. And um, it says, I adjure you by the four gospels of the sun whether a tertian fever or caution fever or other fever depart from N who wears this divine protector because the one who commands you is the God of Israel whom the angels bless and the people fear and every evil spirit dreads. Again, uh, the demon whose name is, uh, who has the feet of a wolf but the head of a frog, I adjure it by the seven circles of heaven, um, the second of aquamarine, there's bits missing from this, of uh, the third of steel, the fourth of malachite, the sixth of gold. I adjure you, unclean spirits who do wrong the Lord, do not injure the one who wears these adjurations. And I'll, I'll leave it there, but it gives you an idea of the sort of thing that's going on. They're empowering an amulet for protection, and they are doing it in the name or using power names that come very clearly from Christianity. Yeah, that's very interesting. And speaking of living religions, another thing that I want to ask you is, um, are there elements or festivals which are um, pagan, I mean that pagans uh, are involved with, uh, or elements of paganism, of contemporary paganism, which either take root in Christianity or are, or are somewhat related to Christianity? Yes, is <laughs> <laughs> the short answer. So, um... We'll, we'll do the controversial one first, shall we? Um, if, I, if I'm setting myself up for trouble, I might as well go all out on it. That's going to um, be the, the theme of this interview. <laughs> I think it is, isn't it? So um, a lot, you will, you will hear a lot, you will see a lot of pagans, um, particularly this time of year, talking about a Samhain. Um, a Samhain, for anyone who doesn't know, is a pagan festival that more or less coincides with Halloween. And it is, for a lot of pagans, it is the main um, festival of the year. It's the new year, uh, and it's one of the most important festivals for a lot of people. Uh, it's connected particularly with ancestors, with um, the dead, whether they be the dead of your own family or whether that be honouring ancestors in a more general sense. Um, and a lot of pagans will tell you that this was originally a pagan festival and that the Christian church came along and tried to suppress it by turning it into Halloween, which of course is short for All Hallows even, um, which is the day when all of the saints 
are um, are honoured. And the day before that is the day when all of the martyrs are honoured. So it is to that extent connected with death. Um, there is no evidence whatsoever that suggests that this is true. The, the earliest you can find an absolute connection between um, Halloween and death is, I, I think it's the 900s. I, I can't check exactly, but it, it comes out of Catholicism. It doesn't come out of the out of paganism or any argument that paganism is having with the church. So Halloween as a festival around death in any way, shape or form is a rare example of a festival that paganism has borrowed from Christianity. Um, but it works. It works brilliantly. There's, there's, there's no problem with that. As you know, as we said, if we if we look at this as anthropologists, there is no religion anywhere that is absolutely pure, and is absolutely free of relationship or borrowing or conversation with the religions around it. That is just not how religions work. Um, so Samhain. Um, has been taken on by contemporary paganism, picking up on the themes that come out of Halloween and taken into a huge festival around the honouring of the dead and the honouring of ancestors. And it's wonderful, but it's not, it's not pagan in the sense that it goes back to pre-Christian religion. The, the other big controversial one, of course, is Christmas. And again, there will be much controversy and arguing um, about whether um, various aspects of Christmas were stolen by Christians from the pagans or vice versa and whether Father Christmas goes back to some old shamanic figure. Again, no evidence at all for that. Um, and you can argue the toss on this one. In this case, I suspect that you have a real conversation in that some elements have come from pre-Christian religion and some elements are Christian that have then been fed back into paganism. So, um, yeah, of course, it is important to highlight that uh, you are mainly talking about the, the UK as a, as a, you know, as a reference, as a geographical. In terms of folklore, yes. Yeah, so if you're going to talk about uh, Christmas and Yule, then there are certain Scandinavian countries where these conversations are, are, are very current as well. Yeah, yeah. Yes. For example, even yeah. even in Italy with the ancient Roman religion, you may have certain um, festivals which, um, yeah, kind yeah. of resemble what the Christian festivals then have uh, come to be. But as you said, you really don't have pureness when it comes to religious festivals. So sometimes they influence each other and they come back in ways <laughs> having gathered something from what came before that yeah and and i think it's also really important and this is this is something that comes up in discussions about folklore a great deal as well um you know are, can you look at folklore or folk customs and can you in those find traces of pre-christian religion and i i think on both sides of this debate there's been a tendency to hugely oversimplify um You'll, you'll have gathered by now, I'm not a fan of simplifying anything. Everything is complicated. Uh, if it's not complicated, you haven't understood it properly. Um, That's a very, when, a very <laughs> academic way of looking at things. <laughs> yes. When, it, when, when Christianity came to Britain, for example, and there seems to have been two separate occasions on which it arrived in Britain, um, 
uh, once into a, a country that was British and once into a country that was Anglo-Saxon. But when it came, the, the worldview that was held by people was, was not a modern scientific rationalist worldview. And we tend to, having had you know several hundred years of Protestant um, post-Reformation Christianity, which tends to be quite rational, um, we think that, that Christianity has always been like this. So the world that Christianity first arrived into in Britain was a world that was populated by elves and nature spirits and things that had to be propitiated, things that had to be kept happy. And because people under, accepted Christianity, that didn't change. You still have that same worldview. You still, you know, you may be a Christian, but that doesn't mean you don't have to protect yourself from the elves. And again, this is this is where magic can come into it from this point of view, because we have the um, we have a number of herb, herbariums from Anglo-Saxon England, one of which in particular, the Lucknaga, is very magical. And again, the magical formulae that are being used are Christian. So there's there's one that commands in 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 the name of God, in the name of Christ. It's um, a healing charm called the Nine Herbs Charm, but it also talks about Woden who is, is very much an Anglo-Saxon god. So you have this syncretism even way back then. And there's a, a charm for, I think this is in the herbarium of Apulcius, but I'm probably wrong, um, for um, bringing fertility back to a barren field. And it is such a, a syncretism between pagan ideas and Christian ideas that it's, it's really quite amazing. So you, you take... Um, sods of earth from each corner of the field and you take them into church to bless them and then you literally plow seed into them in a, a very sort of sexual imagery and and the um the charm itself begins with ecce 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 mana modre which means uh, 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 earth mother of men so um most people would see that as a very pagan worldview, sort of addressing the earth directly as almost as a goddess. And yet all of these ideas exist within the same magical charm for bringing fertility to a field. Now, would the people who did that see themselves as pagans? I think absolutely not. They would have seen themselves as Christians. Are they using ideas and names and probably methods that go back into a pre-Christian past? Almost certainly, yes. So this, when people start to say, oh, well, that's pagan or that's Christian, for a very long time, that clear line didn't exist. And so when we use folklore to try and see, you know, ancient relics, you have to remember this, that um, so one that is very often discussed in, in, in pagan circles, for example, is the Mary Lloyd, which is a horse's skull on a stick um, with a sort of cape around it which is in South Wales in particular, taken around from house to house around Christmas time into New Year, up to the wassail times. Um, and then there's a, a poetic ritual exchange at the doorway before the, the skull and its handler are let in. And then it causes chaos and it's given food and drink and it basically brings blessings for the new year. Now, that is very often by pagans seen as a pagan thing, and it looks like a very pagan thing. It's a horse skull on a stick. It looks very pagan. And the ideas connected with it are very pagan. Uh, but the earliest attestation of it is in the mid-1800s. So it may be people have suggested connections with Epona, who is a, a Roman, a Romano-British horse goddess. Maybe there are. 
they've suggested uh, connections with Crianan, who is um, a medieval uh, figure from the Mabinogi, which is a, a series of Welsh stories. It may be that there are. The point is we can't know. These things are unknowable. But have the people that traditionally have done these things thought of themselves as pagans? No, I don't think they have. And the same is true for Morris dancers. The same is true for Maypoles. All of these things that are now assimilated and used in the pagan community. I don't think that the people who did those in the Middle Ages thought of themselves in any way as pagan. They thought of themselves as good Christians. But they're using ideas and imagery and those things may well have their roots that go back pre-Christian. Um, but that doesn't mean the people themselves thought of themselves as pagan. Does that make some sort of sense? Yeah. 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 It makes me think about quite a few things that I've been, yeah, pondering about. about <laughs> yeah, I don't want to, to go. <laughs> yeah, uh, because it's quite a, a rabbit hole. But it, it is. It, yeah, it, it pertains the idea of, I guess, contradictions in religious beliefs yeah. and how, yeah, we, we tend to think that, you know, what people, how people live a religion is very straightforward and follows what the religion yeah. says, but actually yeah. you can have conflicting word paradigms and conflicting worldviews which the same person can endorse at the same time and yeah it is and about you get the regional variation as well so for example again talking about anglo-saxon england um there are some very early hymns uh cadman is a good example um that are christian they're very definitely christian there is no doubt about that whatsoever but again they're bringing in worldviews and understandings that are quite distinctively anglo-saxon in character and you would not find things that are similar uh for example in the middle east in a middle eastern christian context so one very good example is the dream of the rude which is a poem that is supposedly spoken by the cross which is about as, as christian as you can get but it it addresses god as all father which is a term that we have good reason to think goes back into certainly Icelandic pagan belief. Um, it talks about Jesus as a young hero, which is an idea that comes very much out of the heroic um, sort of tragic worldview connected with weird, um, meaning fate, more or less, that comes out of the Anglo-Saxon worldview. Um, and it's about Christ as a warrior combating on the cross. The, the cross is described as a battle. Um, and um, the, the very fact of the tree, um, the rood is described as a tree. And there are echoes in the imagery of the world tree, of this sort of tree that connects the worlds. So, you know, it, it's Christian. There is absolutely no doubt that it's Christian, but it's a very distinctive Anglo-Saxon type of Christianity that has its roots in a worldview that goes back into a pagan past. So, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, as a last question, I'd like to ask you, what is the current state of the relationship between pagans and Christians rather than paganism and Christianity? I mean, yeah. the, the actual practitioners or yeah, religious believers? <laughs> Ob obviously hugely varied um as you would expect and ag again worth pointing out that i'm talking here specifically about britain because that's what i know about 
And that is pretty much the only thing that I know about. There are obviously Christians who feel very strongly that paganism is associated with devil worship, that it's satanic, that it is evil. And I think it's very sad that a lot of Christians view paganism as evil in a way that they wouldn't view, for example, Hinduism um, as evil. They might think that it was wrong, but they wouldn't necessarily think that it was evil. Uh, and that is very regrettable and it's a great shame. Uh, likewise, there are pagans who are very, very opposed to Christianity, sometimes because of experiences that they had in their um, in their youth or when they were growing up or because they were raised in a very strict Christian environment. Um, and there are still pagans out there who believe that the burning times where witches were executed uh, in the Middle Ages, in, in England, almost never by burning, almost always by hanging, um, were pagan survivors of an ancient religion um, that was being persecuted by the church. And I, I think this, this is an idea that has now been pretty much completely discredited in academic circles. Um, whatever was happening with the witch trials, and I think, again, it's complicated. There were a lot of things going on with the witch trials. Um, but insofar as there was any magic involved, just to take us back a step, it was Christian magic in the way that I have just described. And even where, and there will have been one or two at least, you have women who believe that they have made a pact with the devil. Uh, the thing that they believe they have made a pact with is the Christian devil. So, you know, whilst there are references in the Malleus Maleficarum to Diana, uh, and various other things, by and large, hugely, this, this is not the survival of a pagan religion. This is, this is something else. Uh, but there are still a lot of pagans who don't see that and who are very anti-Christianity because of that. What I find hugely fascinating and hugely interesting, however, um, is the, the middle ground where you have pagans, very often druids, not exclusively druids, but a lot of the people that have, I've seen involved in this are druids, although that might just be because I'm researching druidry, um, and Christians who have a particular, obviously open-mindedness, but also very often uh, a particular tendency to see the divine in nature, coming together to have conversations about where the middle ground is, what they have in common, what they can um, learn from each other. Not necessarily pagans trying to convert Christians or even Christians trying to convert pagans, but genuine interfaith dialogue where people are saying, okay, what can we learn from you? What can you learn from us? How does that benefit both of us going forward? And what ideas can we share? Um, there was in, I think, 2014, uh, a conference that was held um, that was attended by pagans and Christians who were keen to explore this relationship. Um, and the proceedings of that were published in a book called Celebrating Planet Earth, which I would very strongly recommend to anybody who has an interest in, in this. And it, it's got all sorts of things in it. It has got discussions about what are the main differences, um, so, for example, the, the introduction, which is by Graham Harvey, looks at 
the, the, the key element of Christianity has to do with salvation, whereas the key element of paganism tends to have to do with a re-enchantment of, of the world and seeing the world as connected and alive and magic, and a discussion of to what extent those two views can be compatible. So there's that sort of um, very theoretical stuff. And then there's also um, a discussion of how far it is possible or desirable for Christians and pagans to take part in ritual together. Um, and what they discovered was that the figure of Bridget is extremely useful in this context because Bridget appears to have been a um, Celtic goddess. Um, she may be quite widely dispersed geographically. There's discussions about that. May appear in the north uh, of England as Brigantia. Um, but she is very much, she, she's connected with the hearth, she's connected with fire, she's connected with healing, she's connected with poetic inspiration. And of course, in Ireland in particular, the, the, the cult of St. Bridget around Kildare, um, Bridget is a Christian saint who was believed to have been the daughter of a Druid who converted to Christianity. So the figure of Bridget is somewhere where Christians and pagans, at least of a certain type, can meet and can, can both engage without either feeling that they are um, compromising themselves in any way. So Bridget became the, the centre of quite a lot of the ritual that was going on um, at this conference. And, um, and this is what I was hoping was going to, to arrive because I had forgotten the name of this place, which is entirely my fault. There is a monastic community, a, a convent in Scotland called the KLD. Um, um, and I'll send you what that it's it's C E I L E separate word D E, um, and I'm almost certainly pronouncing it wrong. But it's a community. It's a monastic community. It has lay brethren and it has um, it has nuns who regard the pre-Christian paganism of the British Isles as standing in the same relationship to their Christianity as the Old Testament does. So they don't see it as something that was evil that has to now be overcome and rejected, but they see it as something that was building towards their understanding of Christianity, which sees Christ very much as the higher self rather than as the uh, incarnation of God. So, and again, Bridget is the central figure. They have, they release CDs of chants to Bridget. Um, And it really, it, it's just this place where both flavours, I suppose, have a place, have a place of dialogue. Um, there's also, there's um, a couple of people that I'm sure a lot of your, your listeners will have come across. Mark Townsend um, springs to mind. He is, he was an Anglican um, vicar um, who came to have um, quite a deep relationship with Druidry and who sort of places himself as having, it would be wrong to say a footing both camps, but sees both forms of spirituality as being valid and useful. So again, a couple of books that he's written that really go into and explore, and particularly around the person of Christ, and what sort of sense Christ makes in a pagan context rather than in a Christian context. So there's a book called Jesus Through Pagan Eyes and um, another one called The Diary of a Heretic. 
Uh, and both of those explain and explore this meeting place between pagan theology and um, Christian theology and what sort of conversation and what sort of useful fusion and synthesis can be made between the two. And the, the other figure is um, Paul Cudby and, and his wife, Alison Eve, who um, are deeply involved with the Forest Church, which is a Christian movement that seems to seeks to really explore the, the divine connection in nature. And it's, it's something that's far deeper and far, far more at ease with, with pagan ways of doing things than just having church services outside. So they, they do sometimes call, call, the, um, call the quarters, they call the elements in the quarters. Um, and um, Alison Eve Cudby, uh, Paul Cudby's wife, runs an online group that develops ritual, that actively involves uh, nature and the whole person in developing ritual in a Christian context. And Paul Cudby has written a book called The Shaken Path, which is a Christian vicar looking in a positive way at paganism and at dialogue with paganism and again at where the common ground is and their common understanding and his facebook page has both christians and, and pagans on it and the conversations very open friendly constructive conversations about where the meeting points are so um whilst i'm not going to go out and say and again i have personally a number of ordained um christian friends who are very open and are very um happy about working together with paganism and, you know, where can paganism and, and, and Christianity come together and work, you know, because we're both working with traditions that are very ancient in Britain. You know, Christianity has been here for at least 1600 years. Um, paganism's longer. And, and, and again, I, I get quite worried when people talk about pre-Christian paganism as if it's one thing. It wasn't. Um, Greek paganism was different to Roman paganism, was different to Egyptian paganism, was different to Celtic paganism. So, you know, the, uh, the, the Celtic and the Saxon ideas have been in this country for millennia. Um, so, you know, certainly in the British context, there are certainly people that said, OK, so these are both to some extent um, indigenous with a small I cultures in that they, they both are fully embedded and fully culturalized in this country so how do we work together with them where, where are our meeting grounds and you know while it isn't a mass movement sadly i am very hopeful uh, i think this is a, a very good thing and i am hopeful that we will see more of more of this dialogue and more of this um, sharing of ideas and practices and ritual um going forward mm. nice on this hopeful note <laughs> <laughs> we can end our interview Thank you very much, Jenny. I think it was really fascinating. I think that you are, you know that I think that you are very eloquent and I just like listening to you. So hopefully my viewers will, <laughs> will like you too. Oh, thank you. And hope, hopefully I am, uh, hopefully not too controversial. I, I, would, I would rather that nothing in there was controversial, but there you go. <laughs> yeah, but as you said, things are when you look at things from an academic point of view they tend to be very complicated and complex and usually the answer to any question is it depends rather than yes or no yeah <laughs> so yeah but it, it's it's difficult to i mean 
normally people don't like to have um, these kind of answers because they are really complex and you really have to dig deeper in order to understand it fully. Uh, so a yes or no answer tends to be, you know, more reassuring somehow. But yeah, that's why we're here. To <laughs> and to <laughs> drag people out of the comfort zone <laughs> because it's out of the comfort zone that people grow and our minds expand absolutely absolutely and i think whilst whilst the dialogue between paganism and um and christianity for a lot of people both pagan and christian is out of that comfort zone i think it's a place where huge real growth can happen so i, I hope it continues mm. Thank you again, Jenny, for being here on my YouTube channel. You will surely see her again in the near future. <laughs> I can anticipate that. <laughs> and yeah, you, I will leave all the contact details and all the books mentioned in the info box. So do check it out and let us know what you, what you thought of what we have discussed. It'd be really nice to read your thoughts. I shall look forward to reading the comments. <laughs> okay and if you did like this video smash the like button subscribe to the channel activate the notification bell so that you will never miss when i upload a new video and do let me know which part of the interview you like the most and whether you want me to expand on something specifically both in the comments and in the future and as always stay tuned for all the academic fun Bye for now.